the Academy Awards approach, a friend might say, think of Bonnie and Clyde the movie. Now, quickly, name the actors. And you say, okay, Lauren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, of course, Michael J. Pollard, Gene Hackman and Estelle Parsons. She won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor that year. And, oh yes, Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder as Eugene Grizzard, who has a grand total of six and a half minutes on the screen. Here's what John DeLeo draws our attention to in those six and a half character-packed minutes. He writes, The Barrow Gang constantly steals cars, including one belonging to Eugene Grizzard, Gene Wilder, swiped in broad daylight. As Eugene makes front porch advances on his girlfriend Velma, they both watch in disbelief as the gang piles into his car and drives off. While yelling after them, Wilder falls over the porch, cueing the comic nature of the episode ahead. They jump into Velma's car with Eugene in the passenger seat. I'm going to tear them apart, Wilder says, inflating Eugene with masculine confidence, his hands becoming fists. As his fury builds, he imagines no difficulties in dealing with presumed teenagers. Wilder savors the comic mileage in Eugene's puffed-up toughness, which wouldn't fool anyone. When Velma wonders aloud about the crooks having guns, Eugene reconsiders. Without missing a beat, Wilder ends the saber-rattling position of Eugene's response and suggests that they go directly to the police. As Velma turns the car around and they head for the sheriff, the Barrow Gang decides to entertain themselves with a chase. Trying to stay cool but clearly panic, Wilder keeps repeating, Step on it, Velma! Growing louder and funnier as his recent bravado is a distant memory. When the gang catches up, Eugene and Velma roll up their windows, but they are still subjected to schoolyard caliber harassment. Wilder plays the moment as a good sport, trying not to incite the bullies any further. At gunpoint and quiet, scared, Eugene and Velma are taken hostage in Eugene's own car, squeezed between Buck and Blanche in the back seat. Wilder stutters when Eugene is asked his name, then looks positively dumbfounded when it's revealed who his abductors are. The joy of Wilder's performance is the way he loosens up in their company, growing downright comfy alongside the famed outlaws. Cut to nighttime. They're all eating in the car, having just stopped for a takeout order amid the requisite confusion of who ordered what, a seriously hilarious Wilder is unhappy with his hamburger. I ordered mine well done. Having already absorbed the fact that he's been taken hostage by wanted killers, Wilder seems more put out by this undercooked burger. Burger aside, Eugene is having a ball. Wilder suggests someone who has never allowed himself to be quite as relaxed as he is right now. Oh, you're a grand host, he tells Buck. Clyde jokingly proposes that Eugene and Velma join the gang, which has Wilder laughing hysterically, partly as an expression of just how flattered Eugene is by the notion. It all comes crashing down when Bonnie asks Eugene what he does for a living. I'm an undertaker, he says, which freezes her. The subject of death kills the mood and hastily ends the party. Get them out of here, Bonnie tells Clyde. 
Eugene and Velma are left stranded in the pitch-black middle of nowhere. His napkin is folded in his collar. The burger is still in his hand. They've had no time to process what exactly just happened. Gene Wilder just happened to make his debut in one of the more influential films ever made. Already on view to moviegoers were assets he would soon be offering in larger quantities, off-kilter comic timing, a quirky hysteria, and an underlying sweetness. In Bonnie and Clyde, he's briefly at the center of the action and a comic highlight. Then finally, just some abandoned nobody with the wrong burger. Words of John DeLeo about Gene Wilder as Eugene in the movie Bonnie and Clyde and about Wilder's six and a half minutes of screen time. And that's the delight of DeLeo's newest book titled There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less. John DeLeo of Milford, Pennsylvania is a film historian and author of seven books about classic movies. And you thought you knew classic movies. 100 great film performances you should remember, but probably don't. Screensavers, 40 remarkable movies awaiting rediscovery. Tennessee Williams and Company, his essential screen actors. Screensavers 2, my grab bag of classic movies. 10 Movies at a Time, a 350-film journey through Hollywood and America, 1930 through 1970. And his latest, There Are No Small Parts, issued in February by Glitterati. DeLeo has been an annual participant in the Black Bear Film Festival in Milford, conducting on-stage interviews with Farley Granger, Arlene Dahl, Marge Champion, Jane Powell Rex Reed, Tab Hunter, Lorna Luft, and Jane Alexander. He was a recent guest on WVIA-TV's Keystone Edition Arts, Northeast Pennsylvania and Filmmaking, The Golden Age. This Saturday, John DeLeo will have a book signing for his new book, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less at the Tom Quick Inn, Broad Street, in Milford. We had a chance to talk with John DeLeo by phone about his latest and his passion for films. I think at the youngest of ages, you know, when you're just sort of realizing there is such a thing as television and movies and you're sort of getting seduced by that world, it was a couple of things. I I was lucky enough to grow up in a household with parents and grandparents who were all movie nuts. Nobody had any connection to show business at all. They were just devout fans of all kinds of genres, and there was always an old movie on TV somewhere in the house. And then they were also moviegoers, so we would go to the theater all the time. And in the mid-1960s, my earliest memories are seeing Mary Poppins when it came out, and of course The Sound of Music and all those sort of family kind of movies at that time. But it really was all through my house. And I think initially I, I wanted to be an actor, and sort of went on that path for a while because of my love of film and theater. And then at some point it transitioned to actually being a critic and historian and still expressing my love just in a different way. Before we get to the current book, you decided to go for a book. Was it sudden? Was it gradual? Well, I think it was, uh, you could say it was um, an early midlife crisis. I was in my mid-30s. It was a career crisis. I was sort of phasing myself out of trying to be an actor, sort of 
losing my faith in um, good things happening in that particular direction. And I kind of stumbled into the first book because I always had that love of film sort of as my hobby. And then I thought, what if I tried to do something with that beyond the hobby aspect? And the first book was a, was a quiz book called And You Thought You Knew Classic Movies. So that was a way of sort of dipping my toes in the water where there isn't that much actual what we would call writing in that book or criticism. It's more of what I tried to do is like write clever little intros to these quizzes I devised to test people's knowledge. And it went well, and it, yeah, I seemed to have more luck as a writer than I was having as an actor in the previous years. So I thought I should roll with that <laughs> as I'm approaching 40, go where they're saying yes rather than no. And then with each subsequent book, I guess I've sort of tried to challenge myself a little bit more. In terms of criticism, the second book, uh, 100 Great Film Performances You Should Remember But Probably Don't, was film criticism uh, with film history sprinkled throughout chronologically. And so that gave me the confidence to write about film, really write. And like I said, with each one, I sort of felt more confident as a writer and not just a movie guy who had some stuff he wanted to say. And so um, it's been a prog it's over 20 years now, but it's been a natural progression of, as I said, sort of upping the ante for myself to challenge myself and then try to write about the same kinds of things in new ways, like finding a new way in to uh, classic film and sometimes leading up to contemporary film as in the new book, but just sort of always finding a, a fresh way for me to go back and, and relook at things that I love. Is this an experience of immersion? Do you just go and binge as the word is now? Maybe it wasn't when yeah. you started. How do you do it? Well, once I've settled on a topic, yeah, immersion is a good word because then it's sort of like when I'm writing a book, I hardly ever read anybody else's books because it's like I can't. <laughs> I've got, I'm too immersed in my book. And so whatever the topic is, like I wrote a book about the film actors in the Tennessee Williams films. Everything I read or watched for that year <laughs> or so was involved with Tennessee Williams, or at least the actors who were in those movies, so it's all consuming, and then you sort of take a break between books, and then you watch all kinds of things, because you never know what's going to stimulate you for an idea. But yeah, when I'm in it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a total immersion, which is great. It's a limited time, but it's, it is all consuming. And is it note-taking, and is it little squeals like, I never saw that before, that moment before? Yeah, it's, a, it's um, you know, I've often, so when people have asked, what's my process, it's almost like each book teaches you how to write it once you're about a quarter of the way in, where things become clear, and then you're like, this is my schedule, this is my whole sort of day-to-day uh, -day work pattern that the book tells me this is what it needs to be. And yes, yeah, sometimes it's very regimented, it's very organized by the day, and But you're right, there are those aha moments of, oh, I'm so glad I thought of this in time, or that's perfect, and I can put that over here, whatever. So it's, it's always a living, breathing thing, but I do always have a very strong master plan. You know it's going to take over a year, and then over a year after that to get it out in the world. So you really have to love what you're, what you're about to attempt, because you know you're going to be in it for a while. And because you had that theater experience before you took this turn into film and writing as you do, 
Can you imagine that that helps give you a way in that might be different from someone else because you understand theater as you do? Yes. Several of my books, including the new one, the focus is on acting, the focus is on film acting. And yes, if I didn't have a background, not only in actor training, but then living that life for about a dozen years, all of that gives me the confidence to talk about an actor what actors do, how they work, what are their choices that they're making on the material, what's sort of built into the material. So I do feel usually very confident at being able to separate what the actor's doing from the script and the director and what the role calls for, what the actor is giving above and beyond, where the actor didn't quite make it. So, yeah, of course, it's all my opinion, but I do have a certain level of confidence because I did it and I feel I understand it. Maybe it's not appropriate, but people would think, oh, John, he's a classic movies guy. Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, I guess because when I'm asked to do an event or when I host the movies here at the Milford Theater in Milford, it's always classic movies. So I am kind of known as that guy for the people who know me. Because I always feel like, you know, most people are aware of movies of the last 25 years or so, And they know what they like, and they don't really need help from me to get them to find those things, say, on Netflix or whatever. But often, if they love old movies, but they're not that familiar with them and don't know which ones to watch if they stumble on Turner Classic Movies, is this a good one or a bad one? I do feel like that is sort of my role. (laughs) One of my roles in life is to sort of guide people through that period of, say, the 30s, 40s, and 50s and say, please look over here, and I think you'll like this, and if you like this, you'll like that, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I have no problem being tagged as the classic movies guy in certain circles, not at all. And it's a wonderful premise, this new book that you're launching now, the idea that we could look at Marilyn Monroe for less than three minutes or around three minutes on the screen. Tell us what the premise is for this one. Yeah, the full title is uh, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less. And as I said, I've written about film acting in the past, usually focusing on leading role performances, you know, great parts, great stars, sometimes underrated performances, but, you know, major roles. And of course, every movie has wonderful people who show up briefly. We're not always aware of who they are or what their careers were like. And I just started collecting them in the back of my mind and then started writing them down about ones that really stood out and wouldn't it be fun to do a book that just focused on those small performances that make such an impact. Like you mentioned Marilyn Monroe and and All About Eve. I mean, we're fascinated by it now because she was a newcomer at the time. So having a small role like that made sense for someone on the rise. But of course, three years later, she would be the biggest star in movies. And so it's fascinating to watch someone at the beginning and how even in just three minutes, which is actually three short scenes, in a movie that's over two hours long, she really makes an impact because she's not really like anybody else in the movie, and she's just a total delight and has several funny lines, gets all her laughs, and uh, you could see how it was something of a launch to uh, what was to come. And what's wonderful about what you do in the book is you don't cut it short. You develop a way of helping us see that scene again, noticing things that we might not have before if we've seen the film at all or 
trying to remember it. You take time and you make it worthwhile for us to go along with you. It's not just a thumbnail sketch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that was one of the pleasures of this writing about these people was since their time on the screen is relatively brief, I could really talk about what they did in depth because, uh, as I said, they're little miniatures. And uh, so I could really talk about all the details and uh, where they were in their careers and uh, why this belongs in this book, you know. So it was really fun because sometimes if you're writing about a lead performance, there's just so much going on. And I I really enjoyed that the focus was, as I said, these, these miniatures. They were fun to spend time with and really delve into, as you said, it's like every moment of the performance. And we can see that when it's a question of acting technique and you point out that Annette Benning has acting technique, but also that charisma, that star power, that je ne sais quoi postcards is the example that you give us. And you show us that she's there with, of all people, Meryl Streep, and yet right. she makes an impact. Yeah. In Postcards from the Edge, Annette Benning has just one scene, and it is three minutes, and she's with Meryl Streep, as you said, and it's, of course, early in her career, and you can see, as you said that I said, it's not just that she's wonderful in this part, but it's not just, wow, she's a marvelous actress, but she's got a sparkle that just screams movie star. And in a way, it's 40 years after Marilyn's role in All About Eve, but it's a similar kind of impact of like, wow, it, there's something there, and this is not the last we're going to be seeing of this person. <laughs> you know? You're kind of born with that. Yeah, they, they, when they talk about film acting, about how there's that thing about so many great Broadway stars who tried film and they just didn't come across, and it's so indefinable as to why. And the flip side of that is people that the camera just loves and nobody knows why. And it's funny that you said about Meryl Streep being the one Annette Benning has to act against. In Marilyn Monroe's case, she enters, and who's in that scene but Betty Davis. So they both made an uh, impact with the sort of the two giant <laughs> women of their moments. So that makes it even more difficult to surmount. <laughs> And John, take us back to a film or films that is uh, one that you would guess that we wouldn't have a clue unless we're a real film buff. Well, I think sometimes the fun of that was that I could pick some famous movies, but pick people that most readers, the names of the actors wouldn't mean so much to them. And so it was really that lovely thing of shining a spotlight on someone for whom the spotlight has long since passed. So a movie like, say, that everyone seems to love, like It's a Wonderful Life, I chose the actor who plays Mr. Gower, the druggist, who appears briefly in the, when George Bailey is a child and slaps the kid around in a very disturbing uh, emotional scene. And then, of course, he comes back in George's nightmare later in the film. It's, it's like less than four minutes of, again, a movie that's over two hours, and everyone who loves the movie remembers the character, So it was nice to say, this is H.B. Warner, and he had a distinguished career long before this movie, and now when you see it, maybe you'll say, isn't he wonderful? And his name is H.B. Warner. So I enjoy that, because it's not all people like Marilyn and Annette Bening that the names are instantly recognizable. So a lot of those character people that fall in the category of, 
you know that guy that from that thing with that face, but you know you'll never get to the name. So that that was fun for me to like. When was the last time any of these people had a chapter about them? And again, as a former actor too, it makes me feel good to uh, sort of bring in the applause for some of these people that have long since been forgotten. Did you have a hard time getting to a hundred, or did you have to say, "Oh, I don't know, I have three hundred, and I have to whittle it down"? That's a good question. I I think when I first had the idea, even before I wrote a line, I had made a sort of initial list that was close to 300. And I knew that many of them would probably be more than 10 minutes when I actually looked at them. And that was the case. And some of them, they were, you know, good and all, but there really wasn't much to say about the people. And so it kind of naturally whittled itself down. I don't think I was ever afraid there wouldn't be 100. I think when I got to, say, number 90, and I knew there were 10 slots left, and I, I didn't write the book in order. I did obviously place them chronologically once the book was finished, but I didn't write them in the order in which they appear. So for those last 10, I looked around the, the chronology of the book and thought, oh, there's a kind of a little gap here in the late 80s. It'd be nice to have something so there wasn't this time gap. So then I was sort of being a little more calculated in that regard, but there was never an issue about uh, not getting to 100. You do a number of interviews with actors at the Black Bear Film Festival, for example, and what we have just said about you and this book and the fact that you have theater experience and acting experience, and you know so much about film, you've seen so much film, I would mm-hmm. imagine that having an experience to talk to a film actor must be very rewarding for you. Yeah. Yeah, when I moved from Manhattan to Milford, Pennsylvania, I mean, my my joke is when I moved to Milford, I met everybody I ever wanted to meet in New York but couldn't up here. And, uh, yeah, I'm being kind of flip about it, but it's also kind of true because I did get to interview some of these amazing people that came to Milford. And, yeah, I I, I had some wonderful – actually, all the experiences with the celebrities here were kind of extraordinary. But it did actually come up specifically in this book where one of the people I interviewed – here at the Black Bear Film Festival was Jane Alexander, and we had a great interview, and uh, we really hit it off and became friends and kept in touch. And she, of course, has her terrific eight minutes in All the President's Men, which got her an Oscar nomination. When I was putting the book together, I knew she was a shoe in to be in the book. And so when I was done, I got in touch with her and said, you're in this book, I'd love to show it to you, and if you feel like you know, you're able to, uh, it'd be great if you could give me a quote to put on the book. And she read it and she said she loved it. And she gave us a fabulous blurb that slapped on the back jacket. But that was an opportunity that was all through being here in Milford and that there was a festival here and that I got to meet her and we hit it off and sort of talked the same language. And, you know, none of that could have been foreseen (laughs) in any way. Now tell us, how are you launching this book? Well, I'm doing all the things, you know, whether it's radio with you or Zoom, and uh, we're actually starting to schedule some in-person events, which is, again, a kind of a new prospect as we're sort of coming out of COVID, as we all seem to think we are. So uh, we're in the process of doing all that. So I'm kind of everywhere, (laughs) or as much of everywhere as will have me. There will be an official book signing right here in Milford on March 26th, which is a Saturday, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the Tom Quick Inn, which is right in the center of town. 
remind our listeners that you're there in a place where filmmaking happened. Yeah, again, it's another sort of coincidence in terms of me being here and that that's kind of my thing and that there is such a history, you know, particularly the pre-Hollywood years before Cecil B. DeMille and people like that discovered Hollywood as the sort of perfect, unspoiled plot of land (laughs) that you could do anything on, nobody was around, and they built this industry out there and said, come on and join us. But before that, when everything was located on the East Coast and, of course, all the businesses were located in Manhattan, but if you needed nature, people, you know, discovered the Delaware River and the Pocono Mountains and this the scenic beauty that it wasn't that far to get to and that you could make uh, frontier stories or even Western-type stories and, you know, all kinds of adventure stuff and how people like D.W. Griffith, basically the father of narrative film and uh, stars like Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish and Lionel Barrymore, who all became legends, did actually come to this area in those early years to make short films. And then um, eventually, like I said, all made their way out to Hollywood and, and continued in the silent era out there. So it's um, it's really remarkable. And I, it's great that there's so many people trying to sort of uncover that history because it was almost like it was all washed away. Once Hollywood became Hollywood, it was as, as if nothing had ever been before that uh, and so I, I appreciate the efforts of people who've devoted themselves to sort of bringing all that to light. Meanwhile, you continue to write books that find enthusiastic readers. Are you concerned about the future of movies? I am. Oh, I'm definitely concerned in, in several ways about people getting more and more comfortable not going to movie theaters because, well, COVID sort of added to all of that. But just in general, it's been heading that way for a long time because of, you know, what people are able to do in their own home. And I mean, I understand all that. It's just you can't really have the same experience at home that you can have in a theater. And I guess I'm I'm also sad about the way the industry is moving in terms of the dominance of the superhero movies, which I'm not saying you shouldn't have them, but it's just the total domination is, is a little depressing. Just the lack of variety of what gets out there and how television has sort of uh, become a haven for great writing and these series that we binge because it's got great actors and great writing and great stories. And film has let so much of that go to television. Not that there aren't excellent movies that come out every single year. There are. It's just when you look back at the classic era, and true, much of that was pre-television, the variety is is astounding of what was available to people and just the number of movies that were made for grown-ups. Again, astounding in all kinds of genres. And so it's just when you look at any multiplex across America, what's playing You have to hope that one of the seven movies is for an adult, and sometimes it's not. And you're doing your part to remind us about the power of film, and I think we can be in your debt for that. Thank you. And I I have to say, we're showing the movies at the Milford Theater almost every Sunday at 4. I mean, to see these oldies on the big screen, to see these close-ups of these legends, uh, even I am sort of stunned, and I know what's coming (laughs) because I pick the movies. Uh, So I think it it can be a a revelation of why Hollywood became Hollywood, the the beauty, the, the escapism aspect, just being transported to all these other worlds. And it doesn't have to be superheroes involved. There's all kinds of ways to do that, and so... That makes me happy when I can feel that and that I'm sharing it. 
John DeLeo of Milford, Pennsylvania, a film historian and author of seven books about classic movies, including his latest, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less, just issued in February by Glitterati. DeLeo has been an annual participant in the Black Bear Film Festival, and as you heard him say, he is also the host of movies on the screen at the theater in Milford. We have a chance to meet John. This Saturday, John DeLeo will have a book signing for that new book, There Are No Small Parts, from 4 to 6 at the Tom Quick Inn, Broad Street in Milford. And you can meet him, take your own book, pick one up there. It's the Tom Quick Inn, 411 Broad Street in Milford, Saturday, March 26th, from 4 to 6 p.m. Also, the month-long four-film series of Best Picture Oscar winners at the Milford Theatre, Sundays at 4, continues this weekend, and it's Oscar weekend. March 27th, it's From Here to Eternity, Best Picture of 1953. That's the same weekend as the book signing, so it's the book signing on Saturday at 4, and From Here to Eternity at Milford Theatre, also at 4. And looking ahead, on April 3rd, Sunday at noon, it's a benefit for Gate, and that's a screening of National Velvet. April 3rd at 4, a second Elizabeth Taylor movie, A Place in the Sun, with Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters. April 10th at 4, it's Easter Parade with Judy Garland and Fred Astaire. So if you need information about John DeLeo, his books, his movies, his signing, he has a website, and it's johndeleo.com johndeleo.com and that is D-I-L-E-O and he will be signing books this Saturday from 4 to 6 at the Tom Quick Inn 411 Broad Street in Milford and then he'll be hosting From Here to Eternity at the Milford Theatre Sunday at 4 again for more information on the web johndeleo.com he's on Instagram he's on Twitter at johndeleo for example for Twitter and you may find him on his website, johndeleo.com. 